don't know, a dichotomy for me. I've, I've been here at night, uh, most nights for, for VBS, w- watching what we were all enjoying just a few minutes ago, kids laughing and singing and jumping and just having a great time, and it is just pure delight. And during the days, I have been reading and thinking about and studying on the topic of abuse, domestic abuse, sexual abuse, child abuse, husbands who batter wives, people who assault family members, men who misuse their authority to harm people under their watch. And it is horrendous and it is disturbing. This morning I want to help us consider some more of what the Bible has to say about abuse. This is part nine in a series that we've been in, Redeeming Sex and Sexuality. We will look next week, will be the final part in this series on the topic of divorce and remarriage. And then the Sunday after that, we launch into Matthew chapter five and the Sermon on the Mount. But um, this morning's sermon, we are going to think about abuse. First of all, the reality of abuse. Secondly, the results of abuse. And then third, a response to abuse as we think about that as believers. Would also just say, I, I, we, we hear about this a lot. Um, the, the news obviously is, is not going to, when it comes to churches and abuse, the only time we're going to be in the news is when something's wrong, when the church has done something wrong. And the church sadly has its own history in this area and, and deserves condemnation where it deserves it. But I would also add, I hope by way of encouragement that, that I do think within the evangelical community there's, there's progress, there's some, some growth, there's some understanding. And part of that too, and I just referenced the, the books that I mentioned at the end of the sermon notes, there's a number there that I've referred to you for, for further reading on this. I, I think there's been some more thoughtfulness on this and applying God's word to it and more training in these areas and just learning to be more compassionate and to address these topics. Um, What I say this morning uh, will not be exhaustive and answer every question, even if by the time I'm done, you look at your watch, you feel like it should have been exhaustive. Um, It will not be. Uh, I trust that if you have questions, um, concerns, uh, even if this is really hitting home in a very personal way, that you would talk to somebody, that you would talk to one of your brothers or sisters here or one of the elders, um, because I understand this is, this is an incredibly serious topic. The statistics related to abuse vary. Some, some definitions are so broad that the numbers can be overestimated. It's also widely assumed that many cases go unreported. What we know about abuse is that it is normally a man who is the abuser and a woman who is the victim. Uh, There are also hundreds of thousands of cases each year of children who suffer abuse in the United States. There are also cases in which males are victims. By one estimate, roughly 10% of men have experienced some form of domestic violence. We should not dismiss the fact that there are women who seek to intimidate or control or manipulate. There are mothers who harm children. and, And the biblical principles that we look at this morning apply in all of those cases too. But I say all that because for the sake of communicating this morning, I'm not going to flip back and forth all the time and try to offer both pronouns and alternate. By and large, most abuse is a male abusing a female, and I will largely communicate in those terms. Abuse can take a lot of different forms. One of the helpful books on this topic was uh, by a biblical counselor by the name of Chris Moles, The Heart of Domestic Abuse, and he lists nine categories of abuse violence, and he puts it all under the umbrella that the heart issue behind abuse is sinful pride that demands control. It is 
me wanting what I want at any cost, uh, this sort of sense of entitlement. I deserve it, you owe it to me, and, and if I have the ability to take it from you, the power over you with which to, to do that, I will do so. So an abuser may use different means, and these are some of the categories that Chris Moles offers. The obvious one is physical violence, physical force, hitting, grabbing, shoving, spitting, other means of causing pain or injury. Intimidation, using one's voice, one's size, one's threatening posture in some way, threat of a weapon in, in some instances to instill fear, even breaking things in the midst of a rage to try to terrorize someone. Moles also notes that abusers he's worked with frequently used money and security to manipulate and control, so coercing their victims by restricting access to employment or to family income. Uh, other abusers engage in, in ridicule, name-calling, verbally attacking a woman's personhood or identity, humiliation, even repeatedly calling her a terrible mom. Uh, some abusers try to isolate their victims, limiting their access to any kind of means of support, limiting use of a phone or the internet. Others distort the biblical teaching on submission and fully ignore the command to love your wife sacrificially as Christ loves the church, to turn that completely upside down and come up with an environment of entitlement where everybody exists to serve me and to meet my desires. And of course, there is the tragedy of sexual abuse in all of its forms, assaulting, exploiting victims, blackmailing someone, even making ungodly demands on one's wife. These are just some of the categories. The preacher in Ecclesiastes 4.1 voices this complaint. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. Writer in Ecclesiastes could have just as easily written that today watching the news. One commentator who looks at that Hebrew word for oppressions notes that it largely means accumulation, seeking after profit without regard to the nature, needs, or rights of other people. And so it's possible when we see that word oppressions, and particularly there in that context, to see it largely as the the scripture's dealing with sort of a, a financial exploitation, the rich guy who controls the wealth, charging exorbitant interest rates to the, the person in dire straits who needs to borrow money to survive. But the root of the, the Hebrew word for oppression, the ashukim, also has the idea of violence, pressing down, something that is over another and is crushing it in, in some way. And, and that really is the essence of abuse. It is a sinful use of one's power or authority. The Old Testament prophets are filled with language condemning this. If you've read through the prophets, you see God frequently dealing with the people of Israel and confronting them on matters of oppression, of abuse, of intimidation, of coercion. It, it's this exploitation of the weak. One of the chief ways that, that the people of Israel sort of earned God's wrath was to take this attitude of taking advantage of those who are weak. Because we understand in the story of Israel, God's, God's grace in, in choosing this nation that had nothing to, to offer, nothing that it had brought to the table, God in his grace showed them his love, and, and he's now confronting the fact that they would then dare turn around to those who are weaker and, and treat them poorly, exploit them, commit violence against them. In Micah 2.1, God begins this series of woes, and he says, Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. Again, Micah 2 
will go on and, and deal with stolen wealth, confiscating one's property, uh, taking advantage of another's inheritance. But the principle is that God speaks judgment. God speaks sternly against those who use power to carry out evil against someone who lacks it, who uses his, his strength, his wealth, his voice, his size, his authority, whatever it is to get his way. That is abuse, and God's word speaks to it in strong language. God despises the man who devises such wickedness. And so, men, if you, if you dare to get your way by intimidation, by violence, by coercion, by manipulation, you are storing up God's judgment. You are putting yourself in the place of, of asking for God's judgment. God says, woe to the one who shamelessly abuses to get what he wants from a wife, a child, a girlfriend, or, or someone simply weaker. Jeremiah 22.3, God said, Do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless, and the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. That, that theme comes through again and again. Ezekiel, Zechariah, God condemns those who, who harm, who oppress widows, sojourners, orphans. Malachi chapter 2 God speaks specifically to husbands and their treatment of their wives, and, and he uses the, the term in the ESV is translated as faithless, that they are faithless towards their wives. That sort of captures it, but I think the New American Standard probably hits it better when it says this, the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. That Hebrew word for treachery has the idea of betraying. It is someone who is near, someone who of all people should be receiving good from my hand and who instead is receiving evil. And a chapter later in Malachi 3, God pronounces his judgment on these perpetrators. Over and over again, God's word recognizes the reality of man's sinful propensity to manipulate, to coerce, to abuse, to resort to violence, to oppress. One book on sexual sin says that a portion of the Old Testament is a catalog of cruelty. Sadly, there are terrible sins of rape in Genesis and 2 Samuel and Judges and Ezekiel. And while we often, when we speak of the story of David and Bathsheba, we often speak in language of adultery, it's also hard to ignore the fact that that story unfolded in a culture where men had all the power and called all the shots. And so King David sent messengers to a woman who was home while her husband was out in military service, and they said the king wanted her to come to his palace. Understand, those messengers come with authority, just like angels when they speak, come with the authority of the God on behalf of whom they speak. So these messengers come with King David's authority. And so it's, it's difficult to imagine that Bathsheba in that moment thought she had total freedom to decide whatever she wished to do and in fact decline the king's request if she so chose. In fact, we know that when the prophet Nathan later confronts David about his sin with Bathsheba, he uses, you'll recall, that simple illustration of the rich man who had all of these flocks that were his, and what does he do? He goes to the poor man who has one hue lamb, and he, he steals that lamb, and he uses that to feed guests. At the core of abuse is a sinful desire to get my own way regardless of what it costs you. The man who beats his wife or children or takes advantage of another female, the woman who harms a child or the man who sexually assaults a victim. These actions are evil 
And scripture also helps us to see that they are the fruit of wicked desires, that this, this begins in the heart. It begins in the, in the realm of our inner person and desires. James 4 helps us to see that again. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? They're, they're raging. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. This is sinful pride and a sense of entitlement that produce this evil inclination that I can and should have what I want, that I deserve it, and you must give it to me, even if that means harming you. And when a desire begins to become an idolatrous craving, it, it's not hard then to rationalize one's way into manipulating and intimidating and abuse. And so warring passions, as James describes them, are at the heart of abusers, having caused countless victims to be terrorized, raped, exploited, beaten in some way. Abuse is real. It happens, it happens in homes and schools and churches, it happens in marriages, families, dating relationships and among acquaintances. We hear about abuse in the military and medical facilities and daycare centers. Seems like every single day there's some new sick story of someone who has used the internet in some way to try to exploit someone sexually, to try to capture images of people being assaulted. Men, if you manipulate a woman to exploit her sexually, if you lay a hand on her to force her to comply with your will, if you block her path of escape in order to instill fear in her some way, if you terrorize a child who is not obeying your every word, if you use your voice or your authority to threaten someone who is weaker than you, you must be warned of God's holy justice. He speaks clearly on these matters of oppression. and We need to hear that well. God hates violence. He describes it as an abomination, the simple devising of plans in one's heart. It's the reality of abuse. Let's think for just a few minutes about the results of abuse. Using 2 Samuel 13, which recounts the hard-to-read story of Amnon's violent rape of his stepsister Tamar, the act itself is awful, but as you read through the account, you see Tamar just desperately trying to stop her brother. She is pleading with him to stop. In fact, at one point, she cries out, where will I carry my shame if you do this? You read the story and you see that when it's over, Amnon throws Tamar out of his house. 2 Samuel 13, 19 says, she put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore, and she laid her hand on her head and went away crying aloud as she went. Tamar had been raped, and she is overwhelmed with pain and grief and loneliness and humiliation. As one commentator puts it, Amnon treated her as if she was a disposable object. That plea that she cries out in the midst of Amnon's violence toward her is, where could I carry my shame? It's the same as saying, what will I do with this disgrace that you put on me? How will I rid myself of this? It will, it will cover me like filth. If you do this, brother, 
How am I ever to get rid of this? Tamar was traumatized by what happened. To the point, as it describes there, of putting ashes on her head, we typically think of Hebrew mourning in relation to ashes. And there is, there is the idea of grief, but ashes were also worthless. They were insignificant. So to put them on your head also had the indication of humiliation and, and lowliness. She tore her long robe as a public way of visibly expressing the anguish that is in her soul. And the head in hands gesture is not just how we sort of think of just sort of holding your head when you're sort of discouraged about something. Because we see in Jeremiah 2.37, God in judging Israel says that, that the rejection that God is heaping on Israel for their sin that is coming through enemy nations, you will come back with your head in your hands. You will be ashamed. It is a sign of desperate shame. It says she's crying out loudly, giving voice to her agony. One, one writer in a helpful book on this, the book's called Rid of My Disgrace, which is taken from, from this story, says this, the image produced is one of Tamar wandering aimlessly with her torn dress, wailing like one in mourning, publicly announcing her grief and her disgrace. The assault has reduced her to a state of aimless despair. Tamar's body language portrays deep pain. Her actions resemble a rite of shame and link her with all other victims of assault. The post-assault scene is dominated by physical symbols that express her inner trauma. She has been grievously wronged by Amnon and left alone by everyone else. The results of shame, the results of abuse include shame, humiliation, loneliness, fear, despair, not to mention the physical consequences of suffering violence. And then there's the victim's questions. Why? Why did this happen? Where was God in this? Where, where was the protection of God? Were there others? Did, did anyone else know? Did anyone else care? Could anyone else have intervened in some way? Hard questions. The temptation to self-doubt. Did I do something wrong in this? Did I somehow bring this on? Could I have done something different? Sense of utter hopelessness. Job gives us a little sample of this in the midst of his suffering when he says, I curse the day I was born. I wish I had just died when I was born. I, rather than experience this, rather than live with this. 40 years ago, a book called Dory, the girl that nobody loved, classic book from a while ago, Erwin Lutzer writes in it, it's the story of a woman who later became a, a, a missionary who um, served Christ and was used marvelously, but as a child, she was completely unloved, mistreated, and repeatedly rejected by people in her life who should have cared for her. At six years old, Dory was forced to remain at home in her apartment in the darkness, not allowed to turn on lights, just her and her younger sister waiting for hours on end for her mother to come home, wondering if she would return home. And when she did, she tried to hug her and her mother would tell her to get out of here. Eventually consigned to an orphanage where her mother visited her just twice in seven years, Dory agonized. And she writes later, I wondered, why am I so different? Perhaps I can make mother love me. I'm, I'm ugly and it's all my fault. Those who have suffered abuse can be racked with unanswered questions, with bitter doubts, with the temptation to, to blame themselves. Physical and emotional scars may linger for years. It's children who suffer abuse can be two to three more times likely than others to attempt suicide. Results are devastating. And we need to pause 
from time to time, as hard as it is, and, and think on that and reflect on that. We have, I, I had, I'll just say as an aside, several people afterwards who just commented um, gratitude that they've not heard this issue addressed in, in church. Um, that's, that's nothing heroic on the part of the elder team here. That's just us finally getting around to, to doing our job on this one. Um, but, but it's important that we do, that we talk about this and we understand this and understand the results. So let's think about response for our last few minutes. How do we respond as, as, as believers, as a church? What are some steps we can take? Counselor Darby Strickland, who's written on this and counseled a lot, identifies Psalm 82 as a starting point. Let me read Psalm 82, 1 through 4. God has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Let me pause there because Psalm 82, the, the one interpretive question that comes up about Psalm 82 is he mentions these gods in verse 1, he's in the midst of the gods, and he will refer to them again in a comment in verse 6, speaking of you are gods. And so the big question is, is who are these gods? God is clearly judging. The God of, 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 of the Bible, the, the one true God, is sitting in judgment over these who are called gods. They're either powerful human judges who are acting godlike with their authority, or they are demons, those of the evil underworld, if you will, or they are idols of the nations that surround Israel. I, I think we get our help on this one from Jesus in John chapter 10, because he quotes Psalm 82, verse 6, as he's interacting with the Pharisees, and the way he uses this phrase from verse 6 of Psalm 82, you are gods, it's clear that what he's referring to is Israel's civic leaders. So it would seem that Psalm 82 is speaking to those in authority. God is judging evildoers who are taking advantage of the earthly authority they have to attack those who are weak and defenseless. And he says in verse 2, he starts by clearly identifying them. You who are judging unjustly, you are showing partiality. You, I think we could fill in on that and say you who are abusing others. That's the starting point identifying the wrongdoer. You and I obviously lack divine omniscience. Let's be clear, we, we need to be really careful in areas of making accusations, especially of, of something serious like this. But if a victim does overcome her fear to speak up and discloses abuse, or if we suspect abuse, especially of a child, we need to identify the abuser and take steps to do all that we can to provide protection and follow the direction of the law, especially when we are mandated to report. Historically, many churches, when these issues have come up, have, have moved quickly to the Matthew 18 mode, treating it as severe sin and wanting to respond as with severe sin, but ignoring the legal implications of Romans 13, which speaks of legal authority in such cases. Abuse can be spiritual. It, it, it can attack somebody and it's sinful. It, it can have all sorts of ramifications that the church has to deal with, issues that we face, but it can also be criminal. We need to face that and respond in like mind. Uh, while we want the sinner, the, the abuser, to repent and to seek God's forgiveness, our priority 
should be to cut off any opportunity for further abuse. That's why verse 4 says, rescue the weak and deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Protect the victim. I just want to be clear. I talked to somebody after the first service, and I just want to be clear on something that I say here. We are not single-handedly, without ever hearing the other side, fully taking one person's side completely and assuming that the other person is completely wrong. We are, though, being careful to say there must be protection here. If there is possible abuse and it looks like that's happening, we want to step in and protect. We want to rescue at that point as best as God enables us to do. There will be time for the counseling and the, the, the regarding of the situation in more depth, but we need to listen well to a possible victim. We need to hear her story. We need to ask questions. We need to reflect back what she's saying so she hears the seriousness of her words. Take your time. Be prayerful. One biblical counselor warns that as as helpers, we, we can be tempted toward two errors when we're first confronted with a situation like this. Either one, focusing on a single incident of perceived abuse for which the abuser then quickly apologizes and says, I know, I lost it, I, I, I blew my top, and I'm sorry, I was wrong, it's all good, and it won't happen again. The, the, the problem is, by focusing on one incident, that may also cause us to miss a larger ongoing pattern of violence. An abuser, especially in a church setting, may well cop to one incident if that means cutting off the conversation at that point and not having to say anything further. The other practical word of caution from more experienced counselors in this area is that marriage counseling is not likely the the best avenue at that point. In in this sense, because I I know our heart's desire at that moment is let's get them together and let's sort out the priorities and the problems and see if we can help them. But the problem is when there is suspicion of abuse or disclosure of abuse that it's happened, marriage counseling can actually reinforce the abuser's wrong belief that that's right, just fix her. If you can just get her to stop provoking me, then then this won't happen And, and somehow keep up that sense that it's all on her, just straighten her out and that'll stop my anger. By God's grace, there, there may well be a time for, for addressing the, the marriage as a couple, maybe somewhere down the road, to work on repairing and rebuilding things. But protecting the victim from further abuse needs to take precedence in our minds. Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. There is nothing quick or easy about receiving information about abuse. It is indeed bearing of one another's burdens. As one writer puts it, be willing to sit in the mess with them. There's nothing you can say in the moment to fix it, but you can affirm the depth of their suffering. We just had one more that, that certainly came to my mind as I was thinking about these things and reading this week, and that's Proverbs 18:17. This alludes to something I mentioned earlier, and that's to not fully judge someone as guilty based only on an accuser's report. We may not be able to say unequivocally that a man is abusing his wife or children based purely on accusations. But if there is a sense of danger, if there is some disclosure of abuse, we still need to do what we can to prevent further opportunity for harm, even if that means initially acting on one side of the story. Yes, there are cases of false accusations, and 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 in those, we should pursue God's justice and righteousness and repentance and forgiveness in those cases as well. We should pursue truth and desire truth, but there is a side to err on when there seems to be a legitimate potential for harm, and we should be engaged in rescuing. 
when there are matters for legal authorities to sort out, especially, and I would just continue to emphasize this, especially when children are involved, we should avoid interfering with that process by trying to stand in the role of investigator, judge, and jury all at once. Our initial call is to listen, to help provide safety, to take whatever steps that we are called or mandated to do, and probably to do so with the help of others and the wisdom and counsel of others as we walk forward. None of this disregards the church's biblical responsibility to ultimately confront a professing believer who has abused, to speak clearly to him about God's justice and to exhort him to see the magnitude of his sin and his atrocity and the damage it has caused and to call him to repent and to plead for forgiveness from a God who forgives. These truths must be spoken. On the heels of these things, listening and trying to provide safety, we also need to minister as best we can God's truth and compassion to those who are victims of abuse. Part of coming alongside those who have suffered is, is speaking wise and compassionate counsel. A persistent lie that surrounds abuse victims is the idea that somehow the victim invited it or was in some way to blame for it. Chris Moles writes this, as I have talked with pastors and biblical counselors, many have, in so many words, articulated a belief that the victim has contributed to or caused the abuse. Let's be clear. We are all sinners, but the Bible never permits an abuser to harm someone because that person sinned. There is never a pass on this. There is never an excuse for our sin. There is never a, a way of somehow saying, well, but if she hadn't, then I wouldn't have. You are responsible for your sin before God. What is coming out of your mouth or what is coming from your hands is the work of your heart and your heart is responsible before God. And so if you are the husband who threatens his wife or seeks to control her, or the mother who batters her child, you are responsible for your own actions. That's why Jesus said that what comes out of the mouth is what was already in the heart. It is evil that is resident there, and you're simply now expressing it. The violence you do wasn't put there by someone else. It's the product of your own desires within your own heart. People and circumstances agitate and provoke. Face that Every day, most of us, that there's people or circumstances around us that, that might know how to push our buttons. They do not cause. They don't make you lash out, hit, curse, scream, or abuse in any way. That is your doing for which you are responsible. If you are a victim of abuse, say you haven't been reading your Bible faithfully or praying often or consistently showing kindness to your spouse. You did not deserve abuse as punishment. If you were not a Christian when a family member assaulted you, or you were living in complete rebellion to God when, when someone raped you, you did not deserve to be assaulted. It was not some form of divine punishment that you had earned. The punishment for our sin is taken on the person of Jesus Christ on the cross. Those kind of Thoughts that Satan plays in our minds, make no mistake, he is an accuser. And he traffics in lies. The one who sinned against you is fully responsible. Satan will slander and make false accusations in order to justify the evil or to entrap you in guilt or to make the grace of God seem unreachable. 
Ed Welch makes a, a great distinction between guilt and shame. Guilt, he says, is the result of doing something wrong, and it can be lifted by God's grace when we confess what we've done and, and turn from it. Shame, Welch writes, is you are wrong. It can be a life-dominating, stubborn thing that entrenches itself in your heart like a squatter who won't leave. Our response to those who have been abused needs to be a, a readiness to listen, to show mercy, to hear hard questions that we may well not be able to answer. But we can also speak gently God's truth and bring compassion he is a faithful witness who sees treachery for what it is and who will judge justly and punish wrongdoers and brings hope and healing to sufferers. The answer to Tamar's pleading question of how can I ever be rid of my disgrace, the ultimate answer for that is the love of Jesus Christ. That is our hope. 1 John 4.10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You are loved. You were loved before you knew Christ. You were loved by a God who knows everything about you, how you suffered. He knows the shame you felt. He even knows your sinful responses after you were abused and loves you. God is for you. He loves you fully. He knows how badly others have treated you. And Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You have been adopted by God, and nothing stands between you and his love. Nothing separates you from that. The culture's message to abuse victims is often something along the lines of, Be strong. You can do this. You can overcome this. Just, just heal, be strong and heal. Love yourself enough and, and it'll all be well. And the Bible's message is, no, you, you can't do this alone. You are not strong enough. You need the love of God. You need the compassion and grace of God. And you need to cry out to him. Jeremiah says this in Jeremiah 17, 14. Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me and I shall be saved. For you are my praise. It is God's abiding love that you need through the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the compassion of a community of people who will listen to you and love you and care for you. Listen, if you have suffered abuse, cry out to him and talk to someone, talk to someone here, to a brother or sister. If you are being abused, can I plead with you today to speak to a sister in Christ or speak to one of the elders here? Come and, and talk to someone. Seek the help that this body can give. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Pray with me, please. Father, we, we draw near when we read from the prophets. We draw near to your heart on these matters of injustice and oppression and cruelty and violence. In a culture like ours where everything gets politicized and turned into an agenda, when we read your word, we see unequivocally that you have made it very clear that human beings are made in the image of God that you do not tolerate our oppressing other human beings. 
pouring out violence on them, crushing them. Lord, thank you for, for causing us to see just a, another glimpse into your justice and your love for righteousness and your holiness. Lord, I pray this morning first for, for men who are listening who have been or are abusing. Lord, I pray for your Holy Spirit to break through the, the self-deceit and the pride and bring conviction that exposes the sin, that brings exposure so that they might bring it out into the light. Pray, Lord, that you would do a work of bringing about repentance and the desperate need for help. Lord, that you would also bring about the justice that you demand. Father, I pray for those who have suffered abuse or who are even suffering now. Lord, your word says you are near to those who are brokenhearted, and so I pray that they would know first your, your closeness, your care, your love that is supreme, that is unending, that is perfect. Pray that they would find in you comfort and hope and true justice. Lord, I pray for us as a church. Help us. Help us to, to be a place that ministers well to people who have been broken by abuse. Help us to be a place that speaks truth and that loves them and is willing to sit in the mess alongside. Lord, give us wisdom as we deal with difficult matters. Give us compassion to be brokenhearted about sin. And Father, we've been reminded again and again through this, that it is our heart desires that so often can go astray. And so call us with the convicting work of your spirit where our desires are turning selfish, resentful, where we're contemplating, even devising how we might get our way at the expense of someone. You've made it clear that even that is an abomination. So bring us up short Cause us to be a repentant people who would long to love you and love others. Father, I pray that ultimately the, the answer, the, the peace that, that we would offer that would be found would be in the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That the one who bore our sins and bore our shame on the cross, who became a curse in our place, died in our place and rose again that his gospel might be supreme, that it might provide the hope and the answers and the peace. Pray that you would guard the marriages and relationships and families in this church with the good of your gospel, that our homes would reflect homes that love Jesus and that have been loved by Jesus and are being loved, and so that that same mercy and grace would flow in our own communication in our homes. Lord, thank you for the truth of your word, for speaking as relevant today as it did 3,000 years ago when the Old Testament was, was being written. Thank you that these things speak to our hearts. 
Thank you that you are near us, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.